0: hi and welcome to the escape artist a podcast for the culturally curious traveler i'm edwina hart i'm a travel journalist and photographer and each week i'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape we'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavors this podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination
1: hi i'm tony wheeler I've published a few travel books over the years and traveled to quite a few places.
0: At some point in our traveling lives, most of us have packed a bright blue, brick-heavy guidebook into our backpack. You know the one I'm talking about. It's served as a helpful companion on your travels around countless far-flung places. Lonely Planet is a guidebook publishing empire that has shaped the travels of millions of people around the globe. My guest today is the founder of Lonely Planet, Tony Wheeler, who has been described by the New York Times as the trailblazing patron saint of the world's backpackers and adventure travellers. It all began when Tony Wheeler and his wife Maureen embarked on an overland odyssey, driving a banged-up old car along the Hippie Trail, a popular route for free spirits in the 1960s and 70s from London to Freak Street and Kathmandu. The Wheelers eventually arrived in Australia with only a few cents left in their pockets. Little did they know when they set off that their adventures halfway across the world would take them on a much bigger journey from printing the first Lonely Planet guidebook across Asia on the cheap in 1973 to building a multi-million dollar travel publishing giant. Tony Wheeler seems to have ventured everywhere. He's even ticked Timbuktu off the bucket list. Follow Tony along a less trodden path from North Korea's bizarre capital of Pyongyang to Bulgaria's underrated city of Plovdiv. We'll stop to admire the wacky architecture of Ashgabat and Turkmenistan before trekking deep into the jungle to uncover a lost city along Colombia's Caribbean coast and sleep overnight in a shipping container set amongst a colony of penguins in the Falkland Islands. Here's Tony Wheeler. Hi Tony, how are you?
1: I'm very well.
0: I'm feeling really rather pleased about having you on the podcast today to delve into a discussion about travel with the co-founder of Lonely Planet, a travel publishing empire that permeates the globe, is really such a treat. And that brick-heavy blue Bible certainly served me well as an 18-year-old on my first foolhardy backpacking trip around Southeast Asia. And I remember riding tuk-tuks in Bangkok, exploring Angkor Wat, snorkeling off the island of Koh Tao. I went temple hopping in Luang Prabang. I slept on a junk boat amongst the soaring limestone pillars of Helong Long Bay. And I remember sipping Vietnamese coffee along the golden-hued lanes of Hoi An too. And all those recommendations came from my copy of The Lonely Planet. So Lonely Planet guides have served as inspiration for so many travelers such as myself. And I wonder, is there a book a film a song or piece of art that's inspired you to travel somewhere
1: well we always say that the song that kicked off lonely planet was joe cocker singing about about a not a lonely planet a lovely planet i misheard the line in the song and basically gave the business the wrong name
0: <laughs> i had no idea that was the story behind the name of lonely planet
1: it is indeed but the the film that has always i've thought of as a travel inspiration was the Italian director Pasolini, and he made a film, Arabian Nights. It must be 50 years ago now. And the film features Ethiopia. It features Yemen. It features Iran. And you watch this and you just, you, you want to go to all of them. You immediately think, whatever that was on the screen, I, I want to go there. It was the first time I'd ever seen really anything about Yemen. And it, Yemen was on my list immediately. And I didn't actually get to Yemen Until earlier this year.
0: Oh, wow. So you have been to Yemen. I know that that's not the easiest part of the world to travel.
1: Well, I haven't haven't because I I went to the island of Socotra, which is absolutely amazing and is part of Yemen, but it's not the part of Yemen that everybody wants to go to Yemen for. So I've half been to Yemen.
0: Well, that still sounds pretty incredible. And Socotra is like a wonderland of biodiversity. Yeah, so you've that's dipped right. your toe in experiencing Yemen and hopefully you'll make it back sometime soon. In terms of being inspired by that film, you've certainly been to a few of the other places featured, haven't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean Iran has been, been on my list several times and I've been to Ethiopia only once, but I have been there. Um Nepal featured in that film as well, and I've been there many times.
0: I haven't seen Arabian Nights, but it sounds really interesting, so I'll have to check it out. And your extraordinary life of adventures began when you were very, very young. What are some of your most vivid childhood travel memories?
1: Well, I, I lived in Pakistan when I was very, very young because I, my father worked for what in those days was BOAC, British Overseas Airways Corporation, later later on British Airways, mm. and I moved there when I was about a year and a half old and I left there when I was about five. And yet I can remember camels, I can remember floods, I can remember a whale being towed into the harbour. I can remember going out on a fishing boat with my father on the harbour and fishing for crabs. So I've got these really clear memories of Karachi in Pakistan when I was a very small child. And as a result, I've always had a little bit of a soft spot for Pakistan and for Karachi. An amazing city.
0: Is there a particular memory in Karachi that stands out for you?
1: I remember my mother driving a Morris Minor, drove into the driveway in front of this house one day and managed to wedge the car between a, a rabied dog and um, a little girl and told me to open the car door and get her inside, which we did. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was uh, quite a an occasion. And now uh, Um, I I told her about that. She said, oh, I've got a photograph of that little girl and my mother did have a black and white photograph of this child which we'd helped save.
0: Goodness me, what an unusual memory. Yeah, amazing. And have you been back to Karachi since then?
1: Yeah, I have been back to Pakistan a number of times over the years. Um, Most recently, it was about four or five years ago, but there have been quite a few visits. Only one visit back to Karachi, but, you know, it's a, a place that I may get to again one day. Who knows?
0: Mm, and when you did revisit, what were some of your impressions?
1: Oh, Karachi, I remember, it was funny, I remember a lot of the things very clearly about it. I, I had the address of the place where we lived. We had an apartment in a, a big old house and I got the and I went there and the house was still there and it didn't look any different than the way it, the way I remembered it as a five-year-old.
0: It's amazing sometimes how time can feel as if it stood still. Now, with your father's job, you presumably lived quite an international life after leaving Pakistan.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. We, um, I, I lived in the Bahamas for a few years, which was um, very pleasant. You know, it's a, a nice place to say you live when you're still young. Mm-hmm. You know, it's beaches and snorkeling and white sand and, you know, that, all those sort of things. And I think when you're eight or nine years old you're quite old enough to learn snorkeling and mm. head out there underwater so um yeah that that was the a lot of the bahamas memories are like that mm. um and cricket as well i remember my my father played for the um they only really had two two cricket team amateur cricket teams in in nassau in those days and it was the the nassau police versus the royal air force and for some reason there were enough retired RAF people there. My father, who'd been a pilot in the Air Force, he, um, even though he was with an airline now, was on the RAF team every every Saturday. So I I watched a lot of cricket as a small child. And, and where, you know, cricket, West Indies, come on.
0: Ah, oh, that sounds like such paradise for a little boy and such a contrast to Karachi as well. And then as a teenager, where were you based?
1: Um, I did all my high school years in America. So I was living in America for about six years from when I was 10 or 11 to when I was 16.
0: Mm. And do you think that living in such a diverse range of places when you were young set you on the path of a somewhat rootless life? I mean, do you feel now, although you're based in Melbourne, do you feel more at home
1: on the road? I, I'm unhappy if I'm locked down for too long. And on the other hand, you know, I had a younger sister and brother and it, both of them liked to travel. But it didn't give them the mad travel enthusiasm that it gave me. So, who knows? And where do you call home? I, I live in I live in Melbourne, so um, you know that's that's the number one home. But I also spend um, quite a lot of time each year in London, so London's a home as well.
0: And London's where you met your wife, Maureen, the co-founder of Lonely Planet. Yeah, yeah,
1: we we met in London. We both have a have a great love of London. As a when you tire of London, you tire of life, as they.
0: <laughs> they say so. That's so true.
1: Yeah, and you know, but the other place I often say is my home is the airport departure lounge. That I'm at least, you know, you're going somewhere when you're at the in the departure lounge.
0: I know exactly what you mean. I can really relate to feeling most at home when you're in transit. So you met your wife Maureen in uh, London in the nineteen seventies. How did you meet, and what's the story behind that?
1: I was sitting on a park bench reading a magazine and um, a young lady walked through the park and the, the sun, it was October in London, and the the sun happened to be shining on my park bench. So she decided to discreetly sit at the other end of the park bench, which was, I guess, in retrospect, not a good idea. <laughs>
0: And presumably you said hello?
1: Yeah, yeah. And we got married a year to the day later, so...
0: Oh, wow. So
1: obviously it worked. Yeah,
0: obviously. You must have had a really good opening line. Because I know that when I sit on park benches and men start talking to me, I um, <laughs> I usually ignore them. So you're quite lucky. Actually, I think that we're all really lucky because she gave you a go and without that chance meeting, Lonely Planet wouldn't exist today because you set it up together. Have you yeah, that's right. um, have you ever considered it could be because? I'm a hopeless romantic, but it just occurred to me that there's some kind of butterfly effect in you meeting Maureen on the park bench that day, because the books that you've published are so incredibly influential that they've consequently shaped the travels of millions of people for decades, uh, probably even directing people's decisions as to where they might linger over lunch or what wine bar they choose or where they bed down for the night. And I wonder how many lives have been changed as a result. Like, how many couples have serendipitously met because of you?
1: Yeah, I guess we can be responsible for a lot of butterfly flapping. Um, and you know, obviously, when we met, that was a sliding door incident. That she could, she could easily have walked by the the park bench and decided to sit somewhere else, or. I could have not had the nerve to try picking her up or my approach could have been rebuffed. So, you know, in all sorts of ways, it was a chance encounter.
0: Yeah, life's amazing like that. Now, that eventually led to an overland odyssey to Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about that first big journey?
1: Um, yeah, we, we decided it it was an era for that sort of thing. The the Later on, it wasn't actually known as the hippie trail at the time that we made that trip i think we called it the asia overland trek or trip or voyage or something but um later on it became known as the hippie trail and it, it was a it was a thing of the 60s the the beatles were in um in india the there were songs about the marrakesh express it was a it was an era for that sort of travel. Mm. But also it was, a, I'm a classic example of a baby boomer. I was born just after World War II mm-hmm. until I'm, I'm extremely old now. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of people were sort of getting their wings and setting off to travel further than their parents had gone. Mm-hmm. And we, just, we decided to join that trek and we, we bought an old car in London and we drove it as far as it would go, which turned out to be Afghanistan. Sold the car in Afghanistan, carried on up into the Himalaya, up to Nepal, came back down, down through Southeast Asia, ended up in Australia finally, lived in Sydney, and decided we should write a book about what we'd done. And that was really the start of Lonely Planet.
0: That trip was evidently so significant for you, and the fact that it was the inspiration behind. Lonely Planet too makes it even more remarkable. I'm also really intrigued about what it was like to travel during that era and I'd love to hear a bit more about the hippie trail and your journey in more detail if you'd care to indulge me and I think the listeners would really like to hear a little bit more about this too.
1: Well okay so we, we decided that we were going to we were going to travel to across Asia. I mean the, the Asia overland trip, the hippie trail, basically started somewhere in Europe. It started in London or, you know, a lot of people said it started at the Dam Square in Amsterdam. Mm. That was a popular place. Um, and and it sort of ended in Kathmandu. Kathmandu was the sort of goal, although a lot of people thought Kashmir was the goal or Goa in India was the goal. It was, you know, there were different places. But if effectively, Nepal, Kathmandu was the, was the goal. And there was this idea at one stage of the magic bus, this, bus that you picked up in Europe and paid something and it took you all the way to Kathmandu. Other people went by bus and train and public transport and hitchhiked and we decided to do it in a car. And we the, you know the ideal car to do the trip in was a Volkswagen Combi. You know, that, that was, the, <laughs> that was the hippie van of the era. They, <laughs> you still see them around and they still look magnificent. Yeah. We didn't have that sort of money, so we we bought an old mini and it got us there. You know, we, as I say, we had to patch it up a few times along the way, but this car was so cheap that we thought that if it broke down, we'd just park it by the roadside and walk away, leave it there. But it, it did keep going. So there's something to be said for old cars as well, because they break down and therefore you you have encounters getting them going again. But the, the trip, the first half of the trip was a driving trip. And most of the time we were camping out. We did stay in hotels as well. We slept in the back of the van some nights, even though it wasn't really long enough to stretch out in. But then we, once the, the vehicle was sold um, for a small profit... So you
0: sold the car in Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, we sold the car in Kabul in Afghanistan.
0: How did you continue then?
1: Well, then we, we got on the bus, the, the regular bus from Kabul over the Khyber Pass down to Peshawar in Pakistan. And then there was a train across India and it was train and bus and bus and train and all, all the way up to Kathmandu, and then U-turn in Kathmandu, and and of course we spent a little time in Kathmandu, wonderful place back then. Still nice, but not what it once was.
0: In your original guidebook, you wrote about the hashish and that alternative hippie <sighs> yeah. atmosphere of the time.
1: Yeah, that was, it was an era, an era for that as well. And you lived on the street where all the cheap hotels are uh, were in um, in Kathmandu at the time it was called Freak Street because um, the hippies were known as freaks. So, you know, you got there. Where, where are you going to stay? I'm going to stay on Freak Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the few years later, the sort of center of gravity in Kathmandu moved a kilometer or so north to an area known as Tamil. And Tamil is still a sort of a, the backpacker's area of Kathmandu and some nice hotels there as well. But, um, yeah, so we, we were in Kathmandu for a while, and then we carried on back down into it, bus back down to the, down to the plains, out of the Himalaya, down to the plains, and then trains again to Calcutta. And then the the only time we flew in the whole trip was was to Bangkok, because you couldn't travel across Burma by land, so Mm. you you basically had to fly. So we flew from Calcutta to Bangkok, and I remember Bangkok being real, um, it was culture shock, because it was suddenly air-conditioned and efficient and the the (laughs) toilets flushed and the showers showered and all the things that didn't always work that well in India Mm. worked very well in in Bangkok.
0: Sounds like utter luxury.
1: (laughs) It was luxury. And, you know, it it was still, you know, the Vietnam War was still sort of winding down. Mm. Um, So we we arrived in Bangkok and stayed there for a few days or a week, and then we headed off down to Singapore. And we, we actually, we hitchhiked all the way from Bangkok to Singapore Um, Singapore at that time Lee Kuan Yew was the Prime Minister and it was the era of short haircuts in Singapore and I remember there were signs in banks and post offices and so on saying that men with long hair will be served last and if you had long hair you were supposed to go to the back of the queue because <laughs> Lee Kuan Yew didn't approve of long haired hippies <laughs> Presumably
0: um, you had long hair at the time
1: Yeah well I did when I arrived, I didn't when I left Um
0: <laughs> that must have been devastating for you
1: i <laughs> oh, got over it you had his grow again when you're younger um and then we took a we took a boat two boats across to jakarta and again buses and trains down through java to bali and you know bali at that time it was little sandy tracks in kuta beach there were about a, maybe a dozen hotels, lossmen small hotels in um, in kuta beach and half a dozen places to eat it, You know, it wasn't what it became a few years later. Mm. And we we hung around there for a while and we were really trying to work out how we would get from there down to Australia. We were planning to go down to what was at the time Portuguese Timor. It wasn't even, wasn't part of Indonesia. It wasn't East Timor. It was a Portuguese colony. And our intention was to make our way down there and then fly across to Darwin. But it, and that was not going to be an easy trip. We were running very low on money. And then we managed to hitch a ride on a, a yacht with a New Zealander, a New Zealand yacht.
0: Oh, amazing.
1: So we ended up sailing down to Australia and uh, we, we landed in Australia in Exmouth on the Northwest Cape.
0: Oh, that's such a beautiful place to land as well.
1: Well, in those days, it, was, you know, it wasn't the tourist place at all. No one had heard about the whale sharks. If you'd gone into the which we did do, we, as soon as we arrived there, went in and had a beer immediately. Mm. Went into the um, the pub in, in the town and said, well, where are the whale sharks? Said, they'd have said, whale sharks? What are they? Yeah. Nobody knew about them at that time. It was, I, I don't know, 10, 20 years later before someone discovered that they made an annual pilgrimage Past the, past the west australian coast
0: and what was the actual voyage like it sounds like it'd be quite an undertaking to get to western australia
1: yeah it was, it was supposed to take six to eight days and it ended up taking 16
0: whoa um
1: by, the t- by which time we'd pretty much run out of supplies and you're kidding we were living eh? on powdered egg and <laughs> <sighs> tins that had been in the bilge for the last five years i think it was uh, we we were very hungry by the time we arrived in Australia. More and I said we've we've never been that light ever again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine you sort of arriving all bedraggled and just yeah, running up along yeah. the beach, and then you had a beer straight away.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was didn't have many beers. We didn't have much money, but uh, but yeah, it was um, it was a different era. It really was.
0: And after all that travel, how much money did you have when you arrived in Australia?
1: We we had enough money to we hitchhiked down to Perth. Um, we spent a week in Perth and we then carried on hitchhiked across to, to Sydney and we actually when we arrived in Sydney, the last ride dropping us off in Sydney, Maureen said, Okay, you know, we've we've made it from London to Sydney. Um, you know, it's it's been a great trip. We we planned to arrive here with not much money left. How much have we got left? Because I had the money in my pocket, and I said, Well, we've got twenty seven cents, which oh my actually which actually was what we had left, but we, we walked up to the cross and we got 25 bucks for my camera. And um, that, start, that started us in Australia.
0: And the rest, they say, is history. Yeah. What do you think it was about that trip that was so significant for you?
1: You know, I, I think any, any trip that is two things, one, one well, three things really. One thing is that it's a, a duration of time. You know, doing a trip that's three weeks or six weeks or something, very nice. I mean every every trip I do I I rarely have a trip that I don't really enjoy. But uh, a trip that lasts six months or a year is a is a real difference. So I, I think that the length of time of the trip makes a difference. The the size of the trip makes a difference. And this trip started in London and ended up in Sydney. So you've gone halfway around the world. But I think the other thing that's really important and I and it's why i'm very keen about gap years and young people travelling when you do that sort of trip when you're young it you know it has an effect on you that i always say a gap year trip trip you know you learn you learn more on that trip than you did the last 5 years of school or the next 3 years of college or university or work um, th- those sort of big trips when you're young ha- have a real impact and you know it, it definitely had a real impact on me and it was a you know, we didn't have guidebooks the way or the information. If you're going to go anywhere these days, you, you Google it and immediately YouTube videos come up of some influencer or Instagrammer traveling there, or you can look it up on Wikipedia or buy the Lonely Planet guidebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all sorts of ways you can get that information. But Back then in the early 70s, that information wasn't so readily available. So we were really making it up as we went along. And there were a lot of things that were, but there were surprises and well, good surprises. It was one good surprise after another. And I, I still had those good surprises. I still get to go to places and I think, wow, why didn't I know about this before? This is terrific. So there, there is definitely that element to life, which is is worth encountering. And on that trip, we had lots of amazing encounters. It's a, I will still say it was the best trip I ever made. And And I've had lots of great trips since then. <laughs>
0: Well, one such trip was actually recreating your first odyssey in reverse a few years ago. That must have been fascinating as so many of the countries that you visited on the original uh, journey, like Afghanistan and Pakistan, they're not places that one can travel to so easily now.
1: But, you know, it, these trips, are it's not like they've, they're crossed off forever because 2017, so only three years ago, I joined a small group of people from Sydney and Melbourne and we did essentially the same trip in the other direction. We we started in Bangkok and we drove to London. And the, the car I was driving in was made in 1972. You know, it dated right back to yeah. that hippie trail era. And we know, obviously, we you know, you can't go through hmm. Afghanistan. I've, I've been to Afghanistan in the last 10 years. But um, Afghanistan isn't a place that you readily drive through anymore. Hmm. But we did drive through Iran again. So, you know, I was driving through Iran in the opposite direction, more or less 40, um, 45 years later. We also drove through, you know, the stands, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and Kyrgyzstan, places that back in the 70s, there was not a chance of visiting, whereas now you can.
0: Yeah, there's such a change in the way that the world was. I mean, mm. my first big backpacking trip was, you know, I was travelling around Vietnam and Cambodia and they're places that you wouldn't have been able to go when you did your initial trip because of
1: the no, war. No, no, well, we we touched on Laos in that trip. but mm. Back when we did that first trip, Vietnam was effectively, it was a war zone. Um, and, you know, then it was after the war finished, it was really 15 years before Vietnam reopened. There were very, very few non-Soviet or um, non-back-of-the-iron-curtain people visiting Vietnam between 75 and 90. Mm,
0: so I guess depending on what generation you're in you have different parts of the world are open to you to explore
1: doors open and close yeah mm,
0: and I've seen photographs of Iran from the 1970s that just amazed me like old pictures of Iranians wearing bell bottoms and women wearing high heels and lipstick and bikinis on the beach what was Iran like when you visited well there it was like in the that, 70s you know, it was
1: um it was much more open and you didn't women didn't have to go around with a you know, their hair covered up. But the Iranians, I've I've got a I've got a a lot of time a lot of things against the Iranians. You know, their their practice of taking people hostage is really not good at all. And there's a a woman academic from Melbourne who's currently imprisoned in, in Iran. And, you know, definitely this is not good. And you I wish they would sort out some of their practices. But in other ways the Iranian people are great and you know, you you go there today, and the, um, there's a sort of subversion of fashion. You can you can see people, see women in particular, just sort of pushing the edge on the the limits of what they're allowed to wear and what they can get away with, and that's that's very encouraging. And of course, if you meet Iranians and you go once the front door is shut and the curtains are pulled down, then nobody is worrying about having their hair covered and you know behaving the way that the the ayatollahs make them behave out on the street.
0: That's so interesting to hear how it's changed. And it sounds like if one visits Iran these days, making friends with the locals will allow for a much more I guess well-rounded experience.
1: Yeah, making friends is important. Yeah.
0: Now, Tony, we've skipped ahead a little, and I don't want to gloss over the important story behind the beginnings of Lonely Planet. When you arrived in Sydney after that life-changing journey, what made you and Maureen decide to write that first guidebook across Asia on the cheap that you published in 1973?
1: Well, we then our, our plan had been we would live in Sydney for three months and. We'd in that time save up enough money to fly back to London. Mm. But we'd had so much fun that we'd, we thought, let's make it a year in Sydney and then we'll travel for another year. So instead of being a, a one year trip around the world, it'll be a three year trip. And during that year of working in Sydney, so many people asked us, you know, what did you do? How did you do it? Where'd you go? That we thought we'd better write a book about it. <laughs> so that became the first Lonely Planet book.
0: And so you wrote that book in Sydney.
1: Yeah, yeah, we we wrote it, and we had a we had a basement flat in Paddington.
0: Oh, right, that's actually very close to where I am right now. And is there a, a plaque on the house? No, there isn't. We should get like a plaque committee to arrange something <laughs> yeah, in your yeah, honour, like could've... this is where Lonely Planet was founded.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I was in Sydney in the last twelve months, and I one morning, before everybody else got up, I, I walked over to the. Um, to where that house was, yeah, and it doesn't look that much different. Um, oh,
0: nice, nice. Is it one of those typical Paddington white terraces?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's a two story, two story, and a basement. Um, very, very, quite a handsome building.
0: Well, for for listeners overseas, it's a very sort of pretty, picturesque part of Sydney. I actually think it reminds me a little bit of parts of London. It's got that kind of vibe about it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the the, um, the wrought iron, mm. the late the iron lace work. You know, I mean, that's the the look of the places. Or Americans often say it looks like New Orleans. Mm. You know, there's there's various places in the world where that sort of Victorian style of architecture mm. has, has carried through.
0: Mm, how funny. Well, I walk my dog around there and I had no idea that's where Lonely Planet began. So I actually write for Lonely Planet now, so it's nice to know. And obviously, the seed of the idea grew from that very house, and it became this worldwide multi-million dollar publishing company that you sold in 2011. And over the years, you've authored multiple books, including Badlands and Darklands, where you've traveled to some of the world's darkest and most infamous corners. As a traveler, you seem to be drawn to these edgy places. Can you think of a time during your travels that you were most out of your comfort zone?
1: Um. I, I obviously I can't have been because here I am so <laughs> yeah <laughs> obviously it was never that bad um bad lands and dark lands you know I, I definitely I do find those troubled places they're not always edgy sometimes they're just for assorted reasons troubled mm. and um I do find them interesting you know it's um uh, it's interesting how they they get their bad reputations and um I was in Iraq when things were not really good in Iraq but uh, I, I say with my that the first book in that that duo Badlands. I I said that as soon as George Bush said there was an axis of evil, my my first thought was, well, that's an axis. I want to travel along. <laughs> I had been to Iran a couple of times before, but I went back to it again because of that. Mm. Um, but I hadn't been to North Korea before, mm-hmm. um, and I managed to go there. And I hadn't been to Iraq. And I I went to Iraq when certainly there were areas of Iraq, you know, you would feel very uncomfortable. Um, I did travel to the, even the worst countries have safer areas, it seems. What
0: was Iraq like?
1: It was really interesting. I I was really in the Kurdistan region up in the north of Iraq. And, you know, the war was a little bit further south. Although I did, on a car I'd hired one day, we did drive through an area that was, I sort of thought we were going to approach this town and then skirt around the edge of it and actually the driver just found me straight through the middle of it oh wow and um, <laughs> i was not 100 percent happy particularly on one occasion when we we went down a road which ended to be up blocked off and we had to do a u-turn and go back and i was thinking this is not looking good mm. as it turned out it was all okay
0: well obviously your comfort zone i think is a lot more out there. Than most people's, but is there? Can you not think of a time that, like, you really you're really pushing it that you felt maybe a little afraid? Well, yeah,
1: I mean, I I I went. Maureen and I were in Afghanistan in the seventies when, you know, it, Afghanistan felt a bit edgy even then. As you were traveling through Europe and then Turkey, and you know, you're heading towards Afghanistan and you're talking to other people and. Everyone's sort of chewing their nails and saying, "Oh, Afghanistan's mm, okay. Afghanistan is ahead." It was a place where the Afghanis have always been a bit wild and uh, untamed, haven't they? Which is what we, you know, they they defeated the British, they defeated the Russians, uh, they're busy defeating the Americans right now. You know, you, you don't mess with the Afghans, basically. <laughs> okay. You know, and some people say, you know, it's a, it's one of the problems they've got. They're so confident that they can beat anybody that you know, the other country is chaotic to a certain extent. But actually, in that era, Afghanistan was wonderful. It was a great place to go to and it was a lot of fun. It was a very interesting place.
0: What was it like? You went to Kabul. Like, Can you describe it for us? I'm sure that the, the listeners will be as intrigued as I am right now.
1: You know, in in, in Kabul, the, the capital, um, there was a, a street. The, the freak street of Kabul was a, a street called um, Chicken Street. And it was called Chicken Street because it was a bizarre street. And once upon a time, it was where chickens were bought and sold. They weren't anymore, but that was the why it got that name. And it had become the street that had all, all the restaurants and shops and so on. And there was one particular restaurant called Siggy's. And a lot of people have very clear... Obviously, the owner was a German or guy who set it up was a German called Siegfried. And um, it had a. if you Google Siggy's Kabul Car- Carb- today... You'll find pictures of it and right. you know, Siggy's written across the front of this place. And you know, the you didn't eat there every night of the week, but you know, if you were in Kabul for a for a week, you'd probably have at least a couple of dinners in Siggy's. And you know, the music was good and you sat on the floor on carpets and yeah, you know, it was it was very much the hippie hangout. Mm. And Siggy's was sort of we said at that time that there were the the various Ks of the Overland trip and Kuda Beach was one of them and um, Kathmandu was another and Kabul was a third. <laughs> now, of course, later on, Khao San Road. K seems to be the right, right <laughs> initial, doesn't it?
0: You're right. And in Kabul in the 1970s, I'm guessing a lot of the hippies were attracted to the hashish and wasn't the opium trade quite big at the time as well? Oh, look,
1: I, I wasn't, we were never into that. I mean, that. For some people, drugs were a, a major part of the trip, but for a lot of other people it was, it was there, but... We were short of money all the way, so we, we weren't drinking beer every night in the places. That, well, you could, drink, you could drink in Iran. In fact, we did one night. Um, we didn't buy it, but we some people we were friends with went out and bought a bottle of Shiraz wine in Shiraz in Iran. That's where it comes from. Um, we well, certainly couldn't drink Shiraz wine in Shiraz anymore.
0: It's so captivating listening to how these places have changed over the years. They're they're such unique experiences that you've been lucky enough to have in your lifetime. You've travelled a lot by any measure, and the world is filled with weird and wonderful places. So what do you think is the wackiest country that you've ever been to?
1: I've always said that North Korea is the strangest place I've ever been because it, it effectively feels like a film set. You don't believe anything that's happening at all. And you sort of feel that if you go around behind a building, you'll find it's it's one-dimensional, that it's two-dimensional, sorry, that it, it's propped up, you know, there mm. are there are props holding it up and it doesn't really exist. You don't believe a thing about the country. That, I don't even really believe they got nuclear weapons. I think they talk about it and they, they might have had a big explosion somewhere, whether it was a a real nuclear test. They can't build a bicycle. How can they build a nuclear bomb? You know, it's a, it's a fake country, basically. Mm. Um, and it's kind of fascinating because of that. It's, you know, they're horrible to their own citizens. They're horrible to the outside world. But nevertheless, it's fascinating to visit. And I I had a couple of really interesting weeks there. Do you
0: have a story or particular experience that illustrates what you mean?
1: Everything there is... One of my fake incidents is we... We got taken to, they've got two department stores, department store number one and department store number two. And we got taken to, I forget if it was one or two, and set free to look around. And everything in the department store was supposedly made in North Korea. There were North Korean brands that don't exist. You go back to your hotel room, there's a television in it. And obviously it's not a Samsung television, because that, that would come from South Korea. Mm. But they had these North Korean televisions. They, they don't exist. They don't make televisions in North Korea. And it was the same with bicycles. They had a bicycle department, and these bicycles were all fake. They all looked like if you lent on them, they'd break in two. <laughs> and I went back to the hotel, and I went around behind the hotel to find the bicycle park where all the staff parked their bicycles. Mm. And their bicycles were all Chinese or Japanese. They weren't North Korean. <laughs> totally ridiculous.
0: That's just so intriguing. What an unusual place to have seen with your own
1: eyes. I still hold it as my... Weirdest country I've ever been to, but the, the there is a one that has sort of approached it in, in recent years, and that was Turkmenistan, the ex-Russian um, divisions of the Soviet Union, along with Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and so on. And Turkmenistan is a definitely weird place. And the capital, Ashgabat, is full of these ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous buildings. One of them, which is known to foreigners in Ashgabat as the toilet plunger because it looked like the, um, the president at that time, the Bashi as he called himself, mm. had, um, had taken a toilet plunger and given it to his architect and said, make me a tower just like this, <laughs> except make it 100 meters tall and make it out of marble and gold. Wow. So you end up with this marble and gold, 100 meter high toilet plunger. You know, and the the whole city is like that. It's totally absurd. So it it felt to me like it was a cross between Pyongyang mixed in with a bit of Dubai and a dash of Las Vegas.
0: (laughs) That sounds like quite an abrasive combination.
1: (laughs) It was definitely horrendous.
0: Well, we've certainly covered the wackiest places that you've been, but what about the most surreal place that you've spent the night?
1: Oh, You know, one of my favorite nights, and I've, I've stayed some great nights in great hotels and Cheap hotels as well as expensive ones been, There's been lots of good hotels But one of my best nights was in the Falkland Islands mm-hmm. And I was on one of the smaller islands off the, off the coast And there's a farmhouse there And the um, the farm had this um, shipping container Set up as a little room with a little fridge in it And a gas cooker And
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and they drove you out and they dropped you off at the um, The shipping container And they said, we'll come back for you tomorrow. And the farm was about 10 kilometers away. Um, And the the reason they dropped you off at this remote shipping container on a beach was that all the penguins came in there every night. So come sunset, um, all the penguins came ashore and sort of walked by your shipping container and, um, you know, went further up the beach and then settled in for the night. And then come dawn, they... um, came back in the opposite direction. Oh, so
0: amazing. It was
1: great. You know, they dropped me off in the afternoon and there were lots of other birds. Was, you know, Falkland Island is a great place for bird watching. So, you know, there were lots of other birds I saw around there. And then, you know, come night, I, I had a bottle of um, of Chilean wine and um, a spaghetti I bought in the supermarket in Stanley. And I heated that up on the gas cooker and Drank my Chilean wine after after the penguins had come in, <laughs> and you know got a good night's sleep, and then watched the penguins again at dawn. It was, it was oh wonderful.
0: how magical! I've um I've been to the Falkland Islands, and I remember seeing all the penguins waddling around. And actually, now that I'm thinking back to it, there was this one stretch of beach marked off with danger signs. Um, and it was okay for the penguins because they're so small; it was safe for them. But for humans, um, who were heavy enough they might actually trigger the Argentine landmines that were left over from the war. So it was really quite bizarre. But I can imagine that sleeping overnight and having the chance to spend so much time in nature and watching the penguins in the natural habitat must have been unforgettable. And it's kind of crazy with the Falkland Islands like, if you closed your eyes and reopened them, you could easily mistake the landscape for the English countryside. And I know that it's a British Overseas Territory, but it does very much feel like you're in England, but it's very far-flung version of it with all this incredible wildlife. So it's quite a surreal place uh, to explore.
1: It's a, it's a very strange place. Yeah, I, I, I very much enjoyed the Falkland Islands.
0: And then, of course, in the tiny town of Stanley, which is the capital of the Falkland Islands, there's a shop that sells like all the British food, like tunics, chocolate bars or whatever you want. So it doesn't really compute. It's, it's definitely an interesting an interesting place at the tip of South America to visit.
1: No, no, Stanley is a little bit of displaced England.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Now, I wanted to ask you, today many people say that the golden age of travel is over, but I'd argue that if you get off the beaten path, there's still such a sense of discovery to be had. I know that you've been to Colombia, and that's largely an underrated country and such a Mm. treasure of South America. What would be some highlights that you'd recommend for someone interested in visiting there?
1: Yeah, I've I've been to Colombia a few times, and um, the several places you'd I'd recommend there, but the two in particular, one is Cartagena, a really nice city. Everybody loves Cartagena; it's you know the the number one attraction there. But the other place is Ciudad Perdida, which is um, Spanish for Lost City, and it's a sort of it's a second Machu Picchu. It's um, it's very different from Machu Picchu, but it is a a lost city like Machu Picchu. But it's much more difficult to get to Machu Picchu. It's a three-day walk, unless you have your own helicopter. <laughs> and I, I walked up to it and walked back. And, you know, having that walk to get there really makes a difference, that it does keep the crowds out, and it makes you feel like you've you've earned your visit. Um, so Ed Perdida was a, a real favourite for me. But there's, you know, lots of other things. Bogota is a nice town. Medellin, which used to be Cocaine Central, that's a very interesting city. Um, some great scuba diving. You know, it's got a lot going for it, Colombia.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those places, very much in the theme of what we've been talking about, where you know doors are opening and closing. And yeah. in recent years, the opportunity to visit Colombia has well and truly arrived, uh, and more tourists are flocking yeah, there.
1: Back on back on the trail. Mm. Yeah.
0: What about an underrated city, like somewhere really unexpected?
1: Well, the the other place which I've um, I've never been back there. I've only been there once, and it's on my list to go back to. Is Plovdiv, with a name like that, you know, it's just too good to miss. Where is that? It's in Bulgaria. Okay. It's the second city of, but Bar- Sofia is the capital, and Sofia's fine. Sofia's a nice, nice city, but Plovdiv is a little bit quieter, and it's got it's got the odd mosque. It's got some um, Orthodox churches. It's got some Roman ruins. It's got a pedestrian main street. It's got some very nice open-air bars. It's got everything you can ask for. And, and you know, who's heard of Plovdiv?
0: <laughs> well, I certainly hadn't, so thanks for pointing it out for us and putting it on the map. Um, yeah, but something that I was curious about uh, as the more seasoned a traveller I become, I actually worry that I won't be filled with the same wonder and excitement as I'd experienced in my earlier trips. Um, But recently I did go on an expedition voyage to Antarctica and I was overwhelmed with the utter beauty of the place, especially on um, our first tender boat landing on the shoreline of Yankee Harbour. And I sat down amongst this colony of squawking gentoo penguins and the sun was setting. This pink sky was illuminated against a backdrop of sheer white cliffs and i actually cried with joy for the first time ever on on my travels um so i'm wondering where have you visited that has filled you with absolute awe
1: well yeah i mean antarctica is definitely that sort of place and it's part of, it, it is the drama of it you know i i think you you mentioned pink skies but i i think of it as you know there's only three colors there's white there's blue and there's black mm. you know <laughs> penguins are white and black the sea is blue the mm. The ice is white, you know. It's the rocks are black. It's absolutely primary, and um, that is a that is a big attraction of it. But you know, you get the same feeling in um, in the Himalaya. The Himalayas are wonderful, and the, the Australian outback. There's lots of places in the outback in Australia where you know you you look at a, an Aboriginal painting and you can see where it's come from. You you go in the outback and you think, well, this looks just like that painting. I can see what they've seen. So yeah, there's lots of places which. Uh, you go to them and you think, wow, this is this is what makes life worth living.
0: Oh, said like a true traveler. <laughs> and while we're on the topic of uh, places that make life worth living, where are you dreaming of escaping to next?
1: Well it's probably the departure lounge, I guess. We're all dreaming of that at the moment. <laughs> um, the city that's been on that's on my list at the moment that I I want to get to is is Montevideo in Uruguay. And I think it's, you know, it's just across the river plate from Buenos Aires. And I've been to Buenos Aires and people often say it's like a sort of slightly lower key version of that. So I've, I've read about it, but haven't actually been. And there are other things in Uruguay as well. Frebentos, the um, the town that gave the meat pie its name. Um, the um, But, you know, definitely Montevideo is on the list. And it is that sort of being a smaller version of a well-known place and a place that people don't know so well, for me, is the attraction.
0: You're so right, and it really is sandwiched between these two colossal countries of South America, Mm. Brazil and Argentina. I was uh, lucky enough to visit Uruguay earlier this year, and it's such a charming little corner of South America, so I hope you have a chance to get there sometime soon. And I hope that one day I'll be fortunate enough to visit half of the places that you've been in your really quite remarkable lifetime. So thank you so much for joining me today, Tony. I'm sure it's been a nice walk uh, down memory lane for you. And it's wonderful that I could catch you in a rare moment when you're not on the road.
1: Thank you, Edmund.
0: That was the founder of Lonely Planet, Tony Wheeler. This certainly wasn't an episode for those of you who were hoping for some relaxing, flop-and-drop holiday recommendations. And I know that after speaking with Tony, I've certainly been inspired to really step outside my comfort zone on future trips. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. And if you're looking for some more travel inspiration, you can find me on Instagram at escapeartistpodcast. See you next week for another episode of The Escape Artist.